of time, you know that we are uh, through a series in the book of Matthew. So today brings us to Matthew chapter 19. And as has been alluded to several times, uh, a very difficult passage, a very difficult topic. And so I've titled this morning's message, From the Beginning. And you'll see that language come up in uh, Jesus' words in just a few moments. But as kind of a way of introduction, I want to paint us a picture and and hopefully remind you uh, of what marriage was intended to be from the beginning. That is, namely, that God would sovereignly bring two people together, a man and a woman, and join them in a type of relationship that is unique to all other relationships. And in fact, the theme of marriage is something that we see throughout the Bible. I read it this morning uh, for before our call to worship in Ephesians chapter 5. And in fact, the Bible pretty much ends the way it began with a marriage. It talks about how Christ is the bride and the church, excuse me, the church is the bride of Christ. And that when all things are made new, it will be like a wedding banquet. It will be like a wedding festival. It will be like a time when the bride has been brought to the groom and all things have been brought to consummation. It will be a joyous time. But here is the difficulty. We live in between Genesis chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 19. And so things are not as they ought to be. Things are not as they ought to be. And so this morning, before we read our text, I want you to keep the number 100 in your mind. Just keep that number in your mind, and throughout the message, we're going to return to it, and even towards the end, we're going to talk more about what that number means. But keep the number 100 in your mind. Now, I want to say, before we read the text, that uh, there was a, a gentleman who came and, and was our camp pastor this year for our youth camp. His name was Abby Todd, and uh, he is a pastor over in Georgia, and uh, he was a great, great speaker, but even better than that, he was a really good pastor. He loved on your teenagers. He spent time with me. Uh, he, he encouraged me. He pastored me. He impressed our adults in, in, in the good kind of way that you can impress someone, and providentially, just last week, he wrote a blog about divorce. And I say providentially because I didn't ask him to write it. He didn't even know that I was preaching on this. But I want to read to you what he wrote because I think it's timely and I think it's a good way for us to kind of approach this text. This is what he says. Unfortunately, two kinds of churches emerge when it comes to the issue of divorce. Number one, those that treat divorcees like they are second-class Christians Or number two, those that treat divorce as if it does not exist. Thankfully, the Bible takes a third road. Christ himself spoke openly and clearly about the sin of divorce, not as a weapon against sinners, but as a spotlight to the purpose and priority of marriage. Parents and pastors are called to do likewise. In the end... The way we talk about divorce speaks volumes about the way we think about marriage. Therefore, our view of divorce impacts our commitment to the gospel. Before we get to our text, I would just like to issue one final personal appeal to you. I want to be honest with you that I don't come to this text from a safe distance. I have been dealing with this reality in my life since I was seven years old. And on one hand... 
That's somewhat irrelevant to the truth of the scripture. But on the other hand, I believe that it allows me to be empathetic to many of you who daily deal with the ramifications of this issue. And so I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that in the background of all that is said today. And I hope that it will encourage you. With that said, let's stand together and read from Matthew chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read to verse 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him to test him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear. We ask that you would soften our hearts. Father, I pray right now specifically for believers in this room, for brothers and sisters at various stages of their journey, those who might have experienced divorce, those who might be contemplating divorce, and those who by your strong hand have, have never experienced divorce. I pray that you would apply this message specifically to the hearts of all those people. And Father, I pray for the unbelievers among us, for those who might be skeptics, for those who might say, why did I choose to come to church on this Sunday? I pray that they would see that your grace is available to them. That no matter the sin in their life, no matter what they've done, that you desire a relationship with them and that you promise to give them the power to turn from that sin and to trust in you. So we ask that you would do that this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And we thank you for your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like for us to recognize a few things. Specifically, I'd like for us to recognize three things in this text that I think are going to help us to see uh, how, how it is that this issue was, was, was being dealt with in Jesus' day and even prior to that, and then even as importantly as how we need to deal with it in our day. The first thing is that we need to recognize the plan of God. 
recognize the plan of God. So we see here in the first couple of verses that Jesus has gone to a new region. He's just finished a significant teaching section in Matthew chapter 18. And don't, don't forget that because that's going to be integral to our text this morning. But now he's moved on and the Pharisees come and do what the Pharisees are good at. They come to try to trap Jesus. Matthew makes note of this. The Pharisees came to him in verse 3 and tested him. Some of your Bibles might say to trap him or to test him. And they asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We'll get back to that question in a moment. But notice Jesus' answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, there, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we see right there in the opening part of, of chapter 19, we recognize the plan of God. It is popular in our day to say something to the effect of, well, Jesus never really addresses certain topics. Jesus, for instance, even in the last week, if you keep up with um, the, the news, uh, the, the Christian news, there was a, a very notable man, Eugene Peterson. Many of you might know him, read his books. I've read one of his books, very helpful to me. Uh, he is the paraphrase, he is the, I don't want to call him a translator because it's not a translation, but he is the writer of the paraphrase, the message. Many of you have found that helpful in your devotional lives. And he came out this week supposedly in favor of same-sex marriage. And then the next day issued a retraction. Now, I don't know Eugene Peterson. I don't know his heart. We can only take him at his word. My intention is not to talk any more about him, but to say that it reignited an almost weekly conversation that's being had among Christians about whether or not Jesus actually ever spoke about the issue of same-sex marriage. And it is true. If you survey the New Testament, you will never see Jesus say, Two people of the same sex should not get married, at least not in those words. This is what you will see him say. So just as a little bit of an apologetics lesson, as a little bit of an equipping to you, Christian, who are in your workplace, at your school, in your office, even in your family, and a person says this to you, it is not true. It is not true that Jesus did not address all of the aberrations or the perversions of marriage, whether they be polygamy, whether they be adultery, whether they be same-sex marriage. No, Jesus says, have you not read from the beginning? This is the answer to the question of whether or not marriage is solely intended for one man, one woman for life. This is the answer. Have you ever read your Old Testament like I have and you see all of the kings of Israel and you see various people and they just have hundreds of wives, some of them. They have all of these concubines. And don't you just wish, at least I do, that there would have been a little editorial note that Moses uh, or one of the writers of the other New Testament books would have put in parentheses, hey, by the way, God doesn't approve of this. I'm just going to be honest. I wish it was there. But if you read harder, if you look closer, you see that he doesn't. You see that every time polygamy is mentioned, 
You see that every time an aberration or a perversion of the Genesis formula of marriage is mentioned, can we just say it candidly, all hell breaks loose. I think of Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. The one who gave us the Proverbs. The one who warns young men in Proverbs chapter 5 and following to be careful in their dating life. Later in his life, he followed the foreign gods of his wives. I think of David and all the trouble that he got into not being faithful to his wife. So, no, there is no parenthetical condemnation. There is no 11th commandment where God says, in addition to no adultery, don't take on new wives. Uh, in addition to that, don't, don't pervert marriage in all these other ways. But if you look on the pages of the Bible, anything outside of the Genesis formula is routinely a disaster. So again, even in our day, when the issue of same-sex marriage is so prevalent, and requires sometimes such nuance to deal with people, and, and requires a gut-wrenching, even sometimes at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Have you not read? Have you not read from the beginning, this is how God intended it? So, be encouraged. Don't be defeated. When you see that argument, I saw it this week on Facebook from a person that I respect. Somebody that you don't know. He's not a famous Christian person, but uh, he's actually somebody that I used to know earlier in my life. He was my landlord at one time in Nashville. He's a very um, good man in the moral sense. And he is on a crusade to make his lifestyle acceptable, not to the world, but to the church. And this is one of the arguments that he made in light of the whole Eugene Peterson situation. He said, look, Jesus never addressed it. So all of you Christians who think that you know what Jesus thinks, y'all just need to stop talking about that. And my answer to that and the scripture's answer to that is yes, Jesus did. Yes, he did. He addressed it right here from the beginning. Now, before we get to the second point of recognizing man's sin... This comes with a cost to us. Defending what has been now called traditional marriage comes at a cost to us. What do I mean by that? It comes at the cost of holiness. Because one of the charges that's been made against the church by this movement is that we haven't taken marriage seriously. And let me be honest with you, that is not an illegitimate charge. It's not. Churches for far too long, as our brother Abi noted in his writing on the issue, have either been extremely legalistic, pharisaical, judgmental, and harsh about the issue of divorce, or more likely have turned a blind eye to it. Have turned a blind eye to it. We say things like, well, it just didn't work out. We say things like, it'll be better for the children. We say things like, well, I just married the wrong person. And friends, that is not something we are permitted to say. The scriptures tell us plainly right here, and we're going to get to it in a second, 
There are issues where divorce happens. But it was not so from the beginning. It was not so. Now, just because we've made a mess of marriage does not give the same-sex marriage folks permission to make a further mess of marriage. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that because we were soft on one sin, we now go soft on another. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm simply saying that we have to own, and when I say we, I mean corporately as the church, universal, we have to own the fact that we have not taken marriage seriously. Hebrews chapter 13 says, honor the marriage bed and keep it holy. And that was a command in the first century. And it's a command in the 21st century. And so as we think about all that we're going to read the next few minutes, and as we think about the times when divorce does happen, and as we think about the brokenness of the world we live in, I want us to not lose sight of the fact that none of this was supposed to be so from the beginning. None of it. And the fact that divorce exists, justifiable or unjustifiable, is a result of the brokenness of this world. It's a result of Adam and Eve's first sin, and then going forward is a result of, of our sin. There's no way to get around that. And so that brings us to our second issue. Recognize the sin of man. We have to recognize the sin of man. Picking up in verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now note that there's a common formula here for what the Pharisees do. And the common formula is, let us try to quote Moses. Now you've got to understand, they're, they're using Moses there in the place of God. Because first century Jews understand that whatever was written in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law given to Israel, written by Moses, came directly from the mouth of God. There was no doubt in their minds. And so what the Pharisees are seeking to do is they're seeking to trap Jesus and they're seeking to say, now Moses said this, we'd like to see you contradict Moses. Because if you contradict Moses, you're contradicting God and we've got you. Even up until the trial of Jesus. That's what they brought him up on trial for, wasn't it? Blasphemy. Speaking things about God that weren't true. It just so happened to be that the things he said about God were true. So they've tried to trap him. They tried to say, well, okay, Moses said this. What do you say? Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you. See, notice, they, they, they say, why did Moses command us? And Jesus offers a subtle correction and he says, no command, an allowance. Permitted. That he allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. There's that phrase again. But from the beginning, it was not so. And he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so you have to understand a little bit of the background here of the Pharisees and a little bit of background of first century Judaism. And one of the things that this background helps us to understand is that we are not really living in a new cultural moment. What do I mean by that? I don't mean to say that our culture is not different than the first century. Of course it absolutely is. I don't mean to say that we don't face unique challenges because we absolutely do. But what I mean to say is that human sinfulness was just as rampant in the first century as it is in the 21st century. 
And can I just encourage you and encourage myself that the church will survive the current challenge of the same-sex marriage issue. It will survive it. Just because I saw a great quote this week, and I forgive me, I forget who to attribute it to, but it's not mine. And he said, you know, just because a few Western, Protestant, enlightened Christians say that same-sex marriage is okay is just a blip on the radar screen of Christian history. And you know, that person is right. And so there's a tendency for us to think, we're sunk. We can't overcome this challenge. We've never been in this territory before, but can I tell you that in the first century, divorce was a scandal even then. In fact, most scholars believe that among this group of Pharisees that came to, tempt, uh, to test Jesus, some of them were divorced. And some of them were divorced because they didn't want their wives anymore. Some of them were divorced because they found a prettier woman. Because notice here, I want to also say that, that this discussion is framed only in men divorcing women and sending them away. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 24 says. And so while not the main point of our text today, what is intriguing to me is how Jesus often puts the burden on men and elevates the status of women. Because there's, there's a sense in which he says here, and in other places in the scripture, that it victimizes the woman. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, which of course Jesus absolutely has in mind, in Malachi chapter 2, you hear the famous quotation, God hates divorce. But you know what else is in that chapter? God says that a man who divorces his wife, in this case, the priests in, in Malachi's day were divorcing their wives for younger women uh, who were foreign uh, pagan women. He says, those men who do that, they commit violence against their wives. Violence against their wives. And so Jesus is saying, guys, this is a serious deal. This is a serious deal. And no doubt, some of the men in that group were coming to Jesus and seeking to justify their wicked behavior. And isn't that a picture of us? Isn't that a picture of us? Isn't that a picture of what we do? As, as a, somebody who deals with, with youth a lot, uh, and nobody's safe here this morning, okay? So as somebody who deals with youth a lot, often the question is in dating and, 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 and um, sexual behavior, how far can I go? That's the question. Jesus, how far can we push the limits? What is acceptable to you? And Jesus says, guys, that's the wrong question to ask. It's the completely wrong question to ask. The question we ought to ask, it's not in the text, but the question we ought to ask is, Jesus, help us be faithful to our commitment. It would have been wonderful if the Pharisees would have come and said, you know, Jesus, we've been pondering the scriptures. We've been searching the law. We've been allowing uh, the Spirit of God to enlighten us. And we have come to the conclusion that we have sinned and we want you to help us be more faithful husbands. Wouldn't that just be a blessing? But that's not what they ask. They ask, probably some of them for very selfish reasons, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? And so in those days, there were kind of two competing schools of thought among the Jews. One was very strict on divorce, one was very liberal. That's pretty much all you need to know. If you would like to know more, you can consult the commentaries. And so... They were thinking, Who, who's Jesus going to align himself with? Who's, who's he going to line up? He doesn't line up with anybody. 
In case you haven't noticed, Jesus is not interested in lining up with you and me and our opinions and what we think is right and what we think is best. Jesus is interested in our submission. Because notice what he says. He says, but I tell you. Or rather in the SV, and I say to you in verse 9. In other words, Jesus is saying, this rabbi might think this, this rabbi might think this, all the Pharisees have interpreted it this way, but I say to you. I say to you. So I, I, I think this is helpful for us. Not just on the issue of divorce. Because there is a temptation here for smugness to enter into the heart of a man or a woman. Is it not? There is a temptation here for someone perhaps even this morning who has by God's grace been faithful to their spouse. And a little bit of smugness might leap up. And, and a little bit of pride might creep up. And a little bit of... And I've I got this thing figured out. I got this thing figured out. Praise God that He has given you that grace. But don't be presumptuous. Aaron and I were discussing this week just the incidences that we can remember of people who made it through the first 10 years of marriage. And they made it through uh, kids going off to college. And they made it through retirement. And then all of a sudden they're divorced. And everybody looks around and thinks, didn't see that coming. And probably they didn't either, right? And so what we don't need to happen, what we, don't, what we don't need to do is be the kind of people who if this isn't a sin for us, that we somehow say, well, phew, that's for everybody else. Because every area in our life should be subject to, to the beginning of verse 9, and I say to you. Every area of our life. Teenagers, children, every area of your life is subject to what Jesus says. And by extension, what the rest of the word of God says. Retiree, if you're 80, if you're an elementary school student and you're 8, everything, everything that you and I do is to be subjected to what does Jesus say. It's not always easy. And if we're honest, we fail more often than we succeed. But as a Christian, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, this is the only way. This is the only way. So we see here that, that the issue of divorce is not... It's not God's plan. It is not a divine directive as the Pharisees were trying to claim from Deuteronomy chapter 24. But it is an accommodation. It is an allowance. It is permitted when human sinfulness enters the equation. And now we don't, time does not permit for us to exhaust every single possible issue of divorce. That is not the point of this sermon that is not the point of this text. But let me just offer you an invitation. If you have a question about this, if this is a concern for you, if this is something you need to deal with in your past, that is why God gives you the church. That is why God gives you elders. Aaron is not kidding when he said that this week, we, we have labored, and I do say we because we don't do this alone. We have labored and poured over and grieved over the issue of divorce. And we want to help you. We want to minister to you. We want to help you see, as John was speaking so much about, the grace of God even in the midst of profound sin. We want that for you. Do you remember... A few minutes ago, I asked you to keep the number 100 in your mind. So this week, I, I, I asked Pat to just print out a simple membership list. And um, 
I went through it with a highlighter and I asked myself, just my own personal knowledge. I didn't ask Aaron. I didn't ask Cody. I didn't ask John. Just my own personal knowledge in three, just three years being here. I highlighted every person that I know is affected by divorce. Either themselves, their spouse, their parents, or their children. I got to over 100. Over 100. That's a massive percentage of the people sitting in this room. And so even now, my heart is beating fast. I'm at somewhat of a loss of what to say. Other than to say that your pastors love you. We, we want God's best for you. We do not judge you. We make judgments from the scripture. But we are not harsh. So please, please seek us out. Please. We want to help you. Don't be stuck in your sin. So this is hard, friends. This is difficult. But it's It's sin. Right? Every single divorce, whether it's justified or not, whether the spouse was unfaithful or not, every single divorce is a result of sin. Right? That's what Jesus says. Every single divorce, every single divorce is a result of sin. And in fact, this is just the beauty of going through the Bible um, um, chronologically or, or, or sequentially, I guess is a better word, uh, books of the Bible. So all of Matthew chapter 18, it could, could be like a little handbook for marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, we learn about humility, right? In the middle of chapter 18, we learn about restoration and going after a, a brother or sister caught in sin. And at the end of Matthew chapter 18, we learn about extravagant forgiveness. And as a pastor, I am convinced that most divorces are a direct result of our failure to obey Matthew 18. And it breaks my heart. We are not humble in our marriages. We do not seek restoration in our marriages. And we are not forgiving in our marriages. And the evidence bears that out. And so, if you're wondering how to keep your marriage together, go back and read Matthew chapter 18. Go back and see, all right, how can I be more humble? How can I pursue my spouse even, even if, if their sin has offended me? How can I offer extravagant forgiveness that I have been offered from Jesus? That is a prescription for saving a marriage. Now just a note before we go down to the third point of recognizing the grace of God. When we talk about the sinfulness of men, I, I want to, we've been talking about a lot of discouragement. We've been talking about a lot of hard things. And I want to kind of challenge some popular perceptions that are out there about divorce. Because I have just been very heavy about how much divorce is in our church and how much divorces are in the church at large. But I do want to give you some good news. How many of you have heard the statistic that 50% of marriages end in divorce? All of you? Yes. How many of you have heard the statistic that the numbers are the same inside the church? 50% of marriages end in divorce. Well, can I just tell you, throw those statistics in the trash can. They're not true. They're just blatantly not true. They're manipulated to make a point. In fact, according to the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, I don't know why they track divorces. I guess they recognize that it's a pretty painful disease. But they say that the divorce rate has been going down steadily for the last 15 years. 
been going down steadily for the last 15 years. We can praise God for that. Now, so has the marriage rate. The marriage rate has been declining. Partly because millennials, young people, are scared out of their minds to get into marriage. You know, we often think we're pretty harsh on millennials and, you know, sometimes they deserve it. But we're, we, we kind of think, uh, myself included, but, you know, we kind of think, well, they're just shacking up because they just want the benefits of marriage without the commitment. Yes, absolutely true. But have you considered that they're also scared to death? They're also scared to death. Because many of them have seen the destruction of divorce in the lives of their parents or their, parent, their friends' parents or their extended family, and they say, I want no part of that. But there's a longing in their heart, isn't there? There's a longing in their heart. If it was just physical, if it was just to meet that particular need, you could meet that in other ways. But they don't. What do they do? They get together, and they live together, and they buy a house together, and they do their finances together, and they raise children together, and essentially they're married. They just haven't gotten married. There's still a longing for that, right? Because remember, from the beginning, that's how God intended it. And the last statistic about the 50% of marriages in the church dissolving, you know where that stat comes from? It comes from asking people who are Easter and Christmas Christians. They go to a person, they say, do you identify as a Christian? Yes. Have you been divorced? Yes. Well, now we got 50%. But among people who are active in their faith, who actively attend church, who pray together, who read the scripture on a consistent basis, who are what Aaron likes to call, and I think the Bible likes to call, disciples, the rate plummets. The rate plummets. So you can consider your presence here this morning as a gift of God's grace in your marriage. Even if your marriage is a disaster right now, the very fact that you are here the very fact that you are among God's people this morning should give you hope. It should give you hope. And it should give you the, uh, the understanding that God is not done with you yet. That he brought you here this morning to tell you that he wants your marriage to be saved. Now, lastly, we need to recognize the grace of God. And there's kind of a strange we can say strange, ending to this section of the scripture. In verse 10 it says, uh, the disciples said to him, if such is the case, a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So the disciples, they hear this and they think, Jesus, that's a pretty high standard. Like, really? Perhaps we just shouldn't get married. Now, I find this funny because at least one of the disciples was married, Peter, because he has a mother-in-law that Jesus healed. And so I wonder if Peter said that. But anyway, and I wonder if his wife was standing there. But uh, we just hope not. Okay, but, but the disciples collectively, they say, uh, this is too hard. This is too hard. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Now, that's a word that is, uh, you know, go home and talk to your parents about it, okay? But the issue here is that there were people born without the ability to, to reproduce. That's essentially, talking about men specifically here, okay? Then there were a, a subset of men who were typically uh, in a royal court and took care of the king's women, and uh, they were, uh, the ability to reproduce was removed from them. So that's what Jesus is talking about in those two. And he's saying, look, those people, they just don't have a desire for marriage. Okay? But the third one, I think is interesting. 
He says, then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And most scholars agree, it, it kind of in line with Jesus saying, if your eye causes your, you to sin, gouge it out. He's speaking figuratively here about this third category of eunuchs. As a person that has been especially gifted by God to not need marriage. To not need marriage. Because in the first century, and even now, among, Christ, among Christian people, marriage is the assumption, is it not? It is the assumption that a young man or a young woman will, will grow up and they will get married. And by and large, that's a good thing. But it's not the expectation for every person. It's not the expectation for every person. In fact, Paul goes on to say later that some have the gift of singleness. And what Jesus is saying here is that, guys, I know this is hard. I know that the teachings about marriage are hard. But, but God gives grace to those who need the grace to do what he says to do. So the immediate application here is certainly about those gifted with singleness. But I want to make a secondary application. I want us to see that in the bigger picture here, God gives you the grace. Listen to me carefully. If you were divorced for an unbiblical reason and you are remarried, you need to own the sin and you need to repent before God. And then you need to recognize the grace of God in your life and you need to live a life faithful and pleasing to him and show people the power of his redemption. And you know what? That goes for all of us, no matter the sin we have committed. Whether it's publicly known or it's private. We need to own it. We need to repent of it. We need to confess it. And then we need to understand the lavish grace that God gives us to please him. And to live a life that points people to him. In fact, our brother Abi has another great a quote here that he talks about this. He says, Jesus himself used the example of divorce to highlight the beauty of marriage. And parents should not be afraid to do the same thing, whether they are divorced or not. Oftentimes, born-again saints, formerly divorced, can serve as some of the greatest and most humble witnesses to the glory of Christ in marriage. Listen carefully. Your ability to testify to the goodness and love of Christ in the gospel is not contingent on your blemished record, but rather upon your faith in Christ's spotless record. Brides do not wear white because they are without sin. They wear white because they are adorned with someone else's righteousness. This is the good news of Jesus. There's no talking about the gospel without sin, and there's no meaningful discussion about marriage without the mention of divorce. As sons and daughters of Adam, we're all children of divorce. We've all gone astray. We've all played the harlot. But the very existence of marriage tells us there's a greater wedding and a greater family to come. And so friends, I would encourage you with this. John says, the Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 12, that Satan is an accuser. And so when, when Satan comes to accuse you, and he comes to say, how, how dare you now live a, live a life and, and, and parade around like a faithful Christian when you did this? You know what you can say to him? You can say like John Newton, the writer of the great hymn Amazing Grace, I know two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And you can say to him, devil, you are right. I am a sinner and Christ is a greater Savior. Need I remind you that John Newton sold flesh and blood human beings on ships to other human beings? He was a wretch, as he calls himself in the great hymn. And yet, 
And yet he experienced the steadfast, extravagant love and grace of God. And so friends, all of us know, all of us know that the grace of God and the love of God comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of our sin, whether that sin was divorce or whether that sin was a lie or whether that sin was anything in between, it comes at a great cost. But it's freely given. It's freely given to all who would come. It's freely given. Listen, friends, if I could just give you one more point of application in terms of, of laying this sin before the Lord, I would say to those of you who are single people, those of you who are teenagers, that can I just be blunt with you that there is no greater area of presumption in the life of a young Christian than your future marriage. What I mean by that is you treat it very independently. You think you're going to make all your decisions. You don't listen to the counsel of your parents, and you don't seek the advice of the church. And then two years into marriage, you think, I have married the wrong person. Get me out of this hell. We don't want that for you. Your moms and dads don't want that for you. Children, young people, if you're in here, I need you to look in my eyes and listen with your ears. If you have parents who have divorced, listen to me. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. You may not believe that, but it is not your fault. God wants to do something in your life. He, he wants to use the church. He wants to use pastors who have walked through this their, nearly their entire lives. He wants to use other pastors who have come from families that we would all admire and be jealous of. He wants to use other elders. He wants to use your Sunday school teachers. He wants to use your peers. He wants to use all of the people in God's family to bring healing into your life. Whether you're 8 or you're 80 and divorce has devastated you, God wants to lavish his grace on you. But you have to receive it. You have to receive it. And so my invitation this morning is, is twofold. In just a few minutes, we're going to conclude our service with a song, as we typically do. If, if you need to do business with God, if you are a Christian, let me talk to the Christians in the room. If you need to repent of a past sin, divorce or otherwise, this, this altar is open. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing mystical. But there is something uniquely biblical about submitting ourselves to each other and about praying. Even if you don't come to pray with another person, allowing the body to, to agree with you in prayer. You can do it at your seat. You can do it tonight before you go to bed. But 1 John says, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful, not just faithful, he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're not a Christian, and this is something that has happened to you, this is something you've participated in, today, God wants to save you from that. Because on the last day, non-Christian, friend, you will give an account for this. We will all give an account, believers and unbelievers alike. And when the believers stand before God and, 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 and give an account, he's going to look at them and say, on what grounds should I accept you? And the believer will say, on the grounds of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, upon whom I have believed. And Jesus will say, welcome. Rather, God the Father will say, welcome because of Jesus. 
unbeliever, you will be left alone and spiritually naked in a sense on that day. So today, Christ offers you redemption. Come talk to a pastor. Come pray. Come receive him. Whatever you have to do today, whatever you need to do with God, whatever you need to allow him to heal in your life, be open to that. Let's pray together.